Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Tonight, we are in Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 through 26. We do have a title for the study, and the title is Call on the Name of the Lord. So with that being said, let's pray, and then we will get into the Word of God. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray for sensitivity to your Spirit. We pray for understanding. We pray for fresh insight, and we pray that by your Spirit, you'll help us to apply what we learn to our lives. And so we pray, Lord, for help in surrendering. If we're having a hard time surrendering on our own, Lord, help us. Give us that strength. Uh, Give us that enabling grace, we pray. And so we pray, Lord, not just for the people in the building or online, but also um, those all around the campus who are hearing the word of God. We pray that their hearts will be open and receptive as well to whatever you desire to share with them and whatever you desire to do in and through them by your spirit. And I pray personally for the gift of teaching. Help me, Father, to rightly divide your word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, so far we've seen the beginning of the universe. We've seen the beginning of the earth. And we've seen the beginning or the creation of everything in the universe and everything on this earth, including the creation of humans, mankind. And we've also seen the first positive commandment that was given to mankind in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We also saw in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, the first prohibition given to man to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, We've also seen in Genesis chapter 3, the first sin committed by humans, which led to the fall of the human race, the fall from innocence, that fall from that relationship and fellowship with God. We also saw the first promise of the coming Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We even saw the first suggestion of animal sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, as God prepared skins to, to, to cover Adam and Eve, to cover their nakedness. And so that what's implied there is that an animal was sacrificed in order for God to get the skin to put on Adam and Eve. In chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 1, we see the first birth of a human. And of course, that was Cain. If you go back earlier in the scriptures in Genesis, um, Adam and Eve, they were created as as adults. They were fully grown. But this is the first birth of a human in Genesis 4.1. And unfortunately, we saw the first murder in Genesis chapter 4 as well. And as we continue in Genesis chapter 4, we're going to see more firsts. We're going to see more in this series of first things in tonight's study. And so we're going to look at verse 16 in Genesis chapter 4. It says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And so because Cain murdered his brother Abel, he he would no longer be successful in his farming. And so that ground, in other words, will no longer yield its strength to him according to what God said to him, according to that consequence that God placed upon Cain. Also, the scriptures tell us that Cain would live as a fugitive and as a vagabond or a wanderer with no permanent home. And after hearing the details of his consequence, he left, it says in verse 16, he left the presence of the Lord. And the Bible also tells us that when he left the presence of the Lord, that he dwelt in the land of Nod, which literally means wandering. You know, one Bible version says uh, that uh, the, the word Nod resembles a Hebrew word meaning wanderer. And that is so fitting for Cain because he will be a fugitive and somebody who would wander with no permanent dwelling because 
of his sin of murder as he murdered his brother Abel. See, and the scriptures tell us, first of all, that God is omnipresent. And I bring up this topic because it says that he went away from the Lord's presence. Uh, So how could that be if God is omnipresent? Well, first, just to establish the omnipresence of God, I want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. And this is in the New Living Translation. It says in verse 23, Am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I am far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and earth and all the heavens and earth? So God is present everywhere at the same time. He is present in the universe that we would call space. He is present in our atmosphere. He is present on this earth. He is once again, omnipresent. And according to this scripture here in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, God can be both near and far at the same time. Because once again, he is omnipresent. But then there's also something that's called the, the, the manifest presence of God. And so although God is omnipresent, we do, not, we do not always sense his presence. We do not always feel him or sense him or experience him. Although he is everywhere at the same time, omnipresent. And so when God shows evidence of his presence or when he become directly involved in space and time where we live, we live in space and time. When he becomes directly involved here in space and time, when he becomes directly involved in our situations, when he engages actively in the world, the world that he created, we refer to that as God's manifest presence. And you're going to see examples of that as we continue in the scriptures. For example, when he appeared to um, Moses, he appeared as a flame of fire in the midst of the bush and the bush was not burning. And Moses, he it kind of caught his attention at the side of his eye. And so he looked. And so, of course, he wasn't seeing God in all of his glory. But he was seeing, uh, uh, he was seeing some type of um, example that, that God was, was near, that God was present. He was seeing some type of manifest or revealed presence of God, a sign that he is there. And then, of course, still speaking of Moses, when there was that covering on Mount Sinai, and, and it says that the, that the glory of God was like a consuming fire on the mountain on Sinai. That was an example, once again, of his manifest presence. He's letting them know that, hey, I'm here. And so he was actively engaging in the world. Or even when you see the glory of God in the tabernacle of meeting or even in the temple, the more permanent structure. When his glory was there, that's an example of his manifest presence. And so although he's omnipresence, there are certain times, like I said, when we don't sense his presence, we don't see evidence of his presence. Uh, But then as we gather together and God starts answering prayers and people start getting healed and, and things like that, we see miracles begin to take place. You're about to be in a car accident, but miraculously, all the cars for some reason seem to have stopped and you didn't get crashed into an example of his manifest presence. You're not seeing them visibly in that situation, but, but you can sense that, okay, God was here doing something. God has invaded space and time and he was doing something. And so of course, Cain couldn't get away from God's omnipresence, but it says that he left from his presence, meaning his manifest presence. And so Being away from God's manifest presence meant that Cain was godless. 
Cain was godless. He was without God, just out there wandering aimlessly. And as for us, as for people today, being away from that manifest presence of the Lord, that, that would mean that they are too out of touch with him, out of touch with God. They, they are alienated from God. No relationship, no, no fellowship with him. So I can't even imagine not having the presence of the Lord with us. I, I can't imagine going through life without the presence of the Lord in our lives. And thank God as believers, those of us who've trusted in Jesus for salvation, we, we always have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So we always have the presence of God with us. He's, he's in us as believers. But then there's that omnipresence of God. And then there's that time where God will just show up in, in a special way. And we could just sense him manifest presence. So imagine life without God from his presence. All we will be doing is just wandering through life spiritually. We, we would just be going through life with no fellowship with God, no, no peace, no hope. Why do I say no peace, no hope without any fellowship with God, without the presence of God in our lives? Well, well that's because God is the originator of peace. He is the originator of hope. He's called the God of peace. And so with no connection with him, we will be lacking in those areas of hope and peace and, and even joy. Maybe some of us are alienated from joy because we're lacking that presence of God in our lives. And so for the people who don't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it's no surprise when when they as non-believers would, would switch up and they go with the flow of different ideologies. Why? Because they're just wandering. Their mind is wandering. Their, their so-called spirituality is wandering. I'm, I'm, I'm not religious. I don't have to be a Christian, but I'm spiritual. What does that mean? To just wandering. So a different idea comes up and they'll follow that flow because they're just like Cain, but in the spiritual way, just wandering with no presence of God in their lives. And, and it's no surprise when they live on the earth and, and they have a mindset in which that, hey, all there is to life is here. When they have that type of mindset where all they're focused on is the earth and earthly things, worldly things. That shouldn't surprise us for people who are wandering aimlessly throughout life like Cain with no God in their lives, just godless. Verse 17, back in Genesis 4, it says, And Cain knew, or in other words, he had sexual relations with his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so many would Ask the question, where did Cain get his wife? Well, the scriptures tell us simply that Adam and Eve had other children. And those children, of course, would have had offspring and so forth. You can only count the amount of children, or maybe not, that, 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 could have, that they could have had over hundreds of years. They were living a long time, hundreds of years. But as I mentioned in the previous study, Genesis Chapter 4, verse 3 even tells us that some time had passed before Cain and Abel had brought their offering to the Lord. Time had passed. So how many children could they have had during that time? In Genesis uh, chapter 5, verse 4, we're not there yet, but the scriptures do say that, that Adam had other sons and daughters. And so that means that he would have married, speaking of Cain, he would have married one of his sisters, a niece, a distant relative, or whatever was the case. But, but why was this allowed? Because many of you are Bible scholars. You read through the scriptures. You see that this is a no-no, that this is prohibited, <clears throat> people marrying family members. But, but they had to start from somewhere. 
So that's reason why this reason number one, why this was allowed. They, they had to start from somewhere. Not only that, but family members marrying each other, it, it wasn't prohibited yet. That will come down the line as God will give the law to Moses. And then number three, the third reason why this was allowed was because of the gene pool during that time. You know, our, our genes now, today's society, they're, they're, they're more corrupted, more corrupt. But at that time, the gene pool wasn't as corrupt as it is now. Because remember, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created perfect beings. And so, of course, as time would go on, of course, it would be more and more corrupt. But, you know, even when you think about the age of people, they were living for a long time, even then. So, so things weren't decaying as quickly during that time. And so we, we need to be prepared to answer questions like this. And we can simply find these questions or answers to these questions in the scriptures. But another thing we see in verse 17, and I told you we were going to see a lot of first here, a lot of first things here. We also see the first city that is listed in the Bible. And, and the first city that is listed in the Bible is Enoch. It was named after the son of Cain. And the name Enoch, by the way, means dedicated. It means dedicated. And so here we see the first city listed in the Bible. In verses 18 and 19, you're going to see more first here. It says, to Enoch was born Erod. It means, his name means fleet. And Irod begot Mahujael, which means smitten by God. And Mahujael begot Methushael, which means who is of God. <clears throat> and Methushael begot Lamech, which could mean powerful or conqueror. And in verse 19, it says, Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Adah, which means ornament. And the name of the second was Zillah, which means shade. <clears throat> so here you see something that is not God's ideal for marriage. And here we see another first, like I gave you a heads up about. We see the first man who had more than one wife. Now, to be honest, I don't know how he pulled this off. Because I could barely handle the wife that I have. And I'm going to try not to look that way. Because I want to sleep in my bed tonight. <laughs> so I'm going to look over here. <laughs> so I don't know how he pulled this out. But we see the first instance of a man with more than one wife. And so this points to the continuing depravity of man. And we see Cain, this wanderer, godless, built the city. Lamech, more than one wife. Of course, based on the scripture, as we, we read about or have read about the first marriage that, that God oversaw, that God created, his ideal for marriage is one biological man and one biological woman for a lifetime. And that's not something we should be ashamed about. God wrote the scriptures, it's inspired. But, but what about Solomon? What about David? What about Abraham and, and all these folks with more than one wives? More than one wife. We see, that's where we need to know the difference between descriptive passages and prescriptive. A descriptive passage just tells you what happened. Hey, this is what happened. The Bible is going to tell the truth about everything, including the heroic figures in the Bible. This is what they did. It doesn't necessarily mean that God endorsed it. But then there are some prescriptive passages in the Bible. And so what is prescriptive about marriage, that means things we should follow. 
We see in Genesis chapter 2 when God created marriage, one biological man, one biological woman, and his design is for these two to be together for a lifetime or until death separates them. That's prescriptive. Thou shalt not steal. Prescriptive. We shouldn't do that. What else is prescriptive? Trust in the Lord. That is prescriptive. But, but a man in, in the scriptures, one of our Old Testament heroes having multiple wives, or, or even this man, Lamech, having multiple wives, that is descriptive. It's just describing what was going on. It's not telling us to copy this. And so we need to know the difference between those two, descriptive and prescriptive. And that's where a lot of people go wrong. But, but, but here's the thing. We've seen in the scriptures and we've seen in our, in our lives personally and in society that, that when we don't follow the prescriptive scriptures, the things we are supposed to be doing. Or even the scriptures that God clearly says you know, where there's something that we're not supposed to do. But when we don't follow that, we, we see how things to, will go awry or will be messed up in the home and in our communities and in our state, in our cities and in our country, in this world, period. We see how things can and will go awry when we don't follow what is prescriptive in the scriptures. And for now, we're talking, of course, about marriage. God created it. Don't touch it. Follow what God put in place and not just for this topic, but for any topic. God created it. He set it in place. It's not for us to change it. Verses 20 through 22 when Adah bore Jabal, which means stream of water. And he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, which means stream. He was the father of all those, all those speaking of the musicians who play the harp and flute, which would be the stringed instruments and the pipes. And as for Salah, she also bore Tubal Cain, which means thou will be brought of Cain. And he was an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naama, which means loveliness. And so we see even more first. We, we see the first of the nomadic herdsmen. That they were nomadic, which means that he didn't have a fixed home. And this, of course, we're speaking of is we're speaking of uh, Jabal or Jabal. And then Jubal was the first of the musicians who played the string instruments and pipes. And Tubal Cain was the first to develop instruments or tools or weapons that were made of bronze and iron. And so we see these first. And so you go back and you read those scriptures again in verses 20 through 22. And it, and it talks about the father of those, the father of those. So when you read it in context, the word father here refers to those who are the originator of something. And so when you read about Jesus and in the book of Isaiah and it starts describing him and it calls him everlasting father, what that means is that Jesus, for example, is the father of eternity, the originator, the author of eternity. That's what it means. Just like how father means the same thing here, just means that they were the originator of these different trades or so forth. But one thing we need to point out as we think of these descendants of Cain and and Cain himself. That they were that they were doing well and doing all of these things by the world standards or according to the world standard. Though they were doing a good job. They were doing really well. The, the first city and the originator of, uh, of these various crafts and things like that or trades, I should say. They, they were the first of these things. But of course, it, it appears that they were doing all of these things without God in the picture. Godless, just like their forefather came. And even today, there's, there's many people in life who are just accomplishing things. They're creating things. 
They sound good. They, they look good. They, they contribute to society in some type of way. But, but God is not in the picture of their lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 14. These are uh, the words of the Lord, of course, that he gave to Solomon to write down. And Solomon says, he says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And so when you talk about the, the human writer, of course, all scriptures inspired by God as God breathed, but then he used certain people to write down his word. So I refer to Solomon as the human writer, but God, of course, is the author. He is the originator of the scriptures. But here Solomon realizes that, look, there is no meaning, no substance. There is a lack of permanence. There is emptiness under the sun. And so under the sun, that phrase just means the world without God. So in a world without God, there's emptiness, no matter how much that I do, how much I've accomplished, how much I experience, all of these things under the sun, the world without God is just empty. It is vain. It's vanity. And when you think about the overall purpose of Ecclesiastes, one of the purposes is to teach us that true happiness is not found in what the world has to offer. That's not where true happiness is. And so there's people who are going through life, accomplishing many things, getting various degrees, nothing wrong with getting degrees, but but that's, that's their only aim in life. That's what they think will bring happiness, moving up the corporate ladder of success, so to speak, is is all there is to life for some people, just inventing things. That's all there is to life for some people. But the question that needs to be asked is, do you have Jesus? Because in that world without God or just under the sun, because above the sun, that's, that's talking about a world with God. But, but under the sun, that world without God, this emptiness, this, this vanity, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. But so do you have Jesus? Because without Jesus, there is no true purpose. Without Jesus, there is no true peace. Without Jesus, and people like to throw out love a lot, but there is no true love, no agape love without Jesus. There are not even any rewards, eternal rewards without Jesus. There's there's just no purpose. People just going through life aimlessly, accomplishing many things on the earth, but but no hope. There's nothing after that when this life is over. According to some people, as far as what they think, they have nothing to look forward to. Eat, drink, and just be merry, be be happy. That's it. But oh, what they just look at the words of Solomon. Did this king, of course, ups and downs, son of David, in his older years now, has a better understanding. But when they look at the words that are here and really think about that, do you, do you have Jesus? Because if not, then you really don't have anything. Genesis 4, verses 23 and 24, then Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Salah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold or seven times over, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold or seventy-seven times. So why would he say something like that? Why would he say if Cain shall be avenged seven times over, then Lamech seventy-seven times or seventy-sevenfold? Maybe he's saying that because he killed someone who actually harmed him, whereas Cain just flat out plotted murder and he took out his brother Abel. He murdered him. So it looks like 
Lamech is bragging that, look, I'm more innocent than Cain because I actually retaliated against somebody who bruised me, who hurt me, who wounded me. So, so, so I took this man's life and I'm, and, and so if he's avenged seven times over, if somebody were to kill him, then for me, for what I've done, for defending myself, for killing somebody who wounded me, then, you know, people are going to be more harm, you know, than a person who would have taken out Cain. They would experience vengeance 77 times. Or 77-fold. And so he's boasting that the statement is showing his arrogance. And so when you look at what he did here, it's really... Really, his, the consequence of, of killing this person, killing this young man, um, that consequence was really greater than the wrong that was done to him because he was wounded. He was, he was just, you know, struck. The young man struck him, and, and then he just took him out. And so, of course, the law was not given, so maybe he didn't know this. So, But what we see overall is that this just didn't fit the crime, just taking them out, didn't fit the crime. But guidance for these consequences, they would, of course, be uh, given later to, to Moses in order to make sure that the consequences actually fit the crime. And so, for example, we can look at Leviticus 24, uh, verses 17 through 22, and we can see this guidance that God will later give. So that the consequences would actually fit the crime. And so in Leviticus 24, verse 17, it says, whoever kills any man surely shall be put to death. So there you have life for life. There's that balance. And then whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Animal for animal. Kill somebody else's dog, you owe them a dog. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused the figurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. And so later on, God will give guidelines to make sure that the consequences would would fit, that the punishment would fit the crime. And so that you won't have something egregious being done, somebody being killed just for slapping you on the face. That's, that's, not, that's not equal. And what we can learn from these laws here, these laws of God that are laid out in the scriptures, what we can learn is God's character. And so from laws like this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, for example, What that just shows is that God is just. You even see, as a matter of fact, that the great white throne judgment, although everybody who appears at the great white throne judgment are going to go into the lake of fire, the books are still open because what's being determined there is the degree of punishment that they're going to experience in hell. And so even still, you see that God is just. So that's something we can learn from scriptures like this. But back in Genesis 4, verse 25, it says, and Adam knew, or he has sexual relations with his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. Seth, of course, means granted. Or it could mean or, um, to give or appointed, or it could also mean co- compensation. Speaking of Seth, his name. Why? Because God, she says, has appointed another seed for me instead or in place of Abel, who Cain killed. And so I'm sure. And you can see here that and you can understand, by the way, that Eve would still be hurting over the murder of her son, Abel. But of course, his murder is made even worse by the fact that the murderer was her other son, Cain. 
And so in that statement, verse 25, at the end of that statement, whom Cain killed, oh, you can, that memory of her son, of her son is still there. She lived for a long time, so how long she's been dealing with this. And I'll tell you this, that, that mothers who have lost a child, no matter the age, will never forget. And of course, it's, it's normal to grieve. But I will say that in your grieving, fall back on the knowledge that you have about the Lord, that the Lord knows what he's doing, that the Lord is good. Even though this happened, the Lord is good. The Lord is still gracious. The Lord is still merciful. The Lord is still perfect. The Lord is holy. The Lord is just. He is the God of my peace. God doesn't make any mistakes. God is still on the throne. So in your grieving, fall back on the knowledge that you have about the Lord. And don't allow the situation or the enemy to to use that situation to cause you to, to forget about what you already know about the Lord. But, but remember the Lord. Remember his goodness. Remember his character. Remember his attributes that, that he is love. And fall back on his promises. Lean on that God, the God of the scriptures, the God of the Bible. And lean on the comfort that only comes from him. That's why he's called the God of all comfort. And I don't share this as somebody who's not close to the situation. Because in, in, in 2016, my, you know, one of my brothers got killed by gunfire. Me being the oldest, I had to be there for my mom. I had to make, make sure that I'm answering the calls as much as possible and check on her as much as possible. Plan the memorial service. Preach at the memorial service. And so, of course, she, you know, my mom, she would always... She still even texts me. He, passed, he died and got killed in 2016. She'll text me. Oh, oh your brother's birthday is coming up. She's doing well, by the way. She's remembering the promises of the Lord, the knowledge she has about the Lord. She, she's leaning on him and the comfort that only comes from the Lord. My mom has a great name, by the way. Her name is Ruth. Biblical name. But then, of course, you have here something about Seth in verse 25. You see that God appointed or he granted Seth to Eve as compensation or a replacement for righteous Abel. Why do I call him righteous Abel? I call him righteous Abel because Jesus called him righteous Abel. So yes, Abel is a real person. Jesus is God. Jesus refers to him. Jesus calls him righteous. Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. Why is Abel righteous? He's righteous because of his faith in God. That's the only way for us to be truly righteous in the sight of God. It is a declared righteousness or an imputed righteousness where the righteousness of God, of Christ, is imputed into our spiritual account when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So when he sees us, he sees us as if we never sinned. We have a right standing with God. And I think about Seth, the one who sort of, you know, acts as this compensational replacement for righteous Abel. The thing about him is that he's actually listed as one of the um, ancestors of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And when you read Luke chapter 3, what you're reading is Mary's lineage. And so in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, if you want to write it down, you see Seth there in the ancestry of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And of course, this is according to his humanity. Because, because remember, he has two natures. He's fully God, truly God. But then he has that human nature. 
And that human nature is the only thing about Jesus that had a beginning. But other than that, as a whole, he, he always existed. He is eternal. And so according to his human nature, his humanity, Seth is in his bloodline. And in Genesis 4, 26, and as for Seth, to him also a son was born and he named him Enosh. Enosh means man or mortal man. Then it says, then men began to call on or proclaim the name of the Lord. That is Yahweh. And so Enosh, if you read the scriptures, once again, in Luke chapter three, verse 38, he is also in the lineage of Jesus Christ, according to Jesus's humanity. But according to Jesus's deity, Jesus is Seth and Enosh's creator. And so there are different ways. As we look at this phrase where, where it says that men began to call on the name of the Lord, there's different ways to interpret that phrase. And, and when you listen to various Bible teachers or Bible scholars or pastors or Bible teachers, whatever you want to call them, you'll, you'll see that some will share their different thoughts or views of what this could be saying, where it says that men began to call on the name of the Lord because some Bible teachers will say that men began to use the name of the Lord Yahweh for God. Some will say that's what it means, that they began to use the name of the Lord Yahweh. Some will say that it refers to the beginning of the practice of prayer. Some interpret it to mean that. Yet others would say that these people were called by the name of the Lord as believers in Yahweh. And still others would say that this phrase that men began to call on the name of the Lord, they, they say that it's referring to the beginning of regular public worship of the Lord. And so it was the regular public worship of the community of faith that gathered together, they would say. And so with that in mind, some actually refer to what we see in here in verse 26 as the first revival after a period of spiritual decline. But, but I kind of like the, the fifth one because I get to combine all of them together. And it will be appropriate. Where it says, and man began to call on the name of the Lord. So it could very well be a combination of the descendants of Seth gathering together publicly to pro proclaim the name of the Lord in worship and in praying to him. And praying, by the way, is a form of worship. And so as a result, of them proclaiming the name of the Lord as they worship him, as they pray to him as a result, then of course they will call themselves by the name of the Lord. Why? Because it's showing that they identify themselves with Yahweh. <coughs> because they're his worshipers. They belong to him. And so I will say this to anyone who will consider themselves a an unbeliever or a non-believer, you have never put your trust in Jesus. You've never repented or had this change of mind towards sin and turned towards God. If you've never done that, then you will be a, a non-believer or unbeliever, as some would say. And so I say, if you never received Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, I encourage you to call upon his name. Call upon his name by repenting of your sins and then placing your trust in him for salvation as it tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and this is a quote, by the way, from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. It says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever repents, whoever puts their trust in Jesus for salvation, you'll be saved. You'll be saved from the penalty of sin, which is hell. You'll be saved from the power of sin. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In fact, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, 
Christians so narrow. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be narrow because my Savior is narrow. And so this is, this is, this is Peter's who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he's, in other words, when it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, that means he's influenced by the Holy Spirit. And he says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not going to be saved by calling on the name of Buddha. You're not going to be saved by calling on Allah. You're not going to be saved by calling on the Dalai Lama. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Because there is only one who stepped out of eternity, took upon a human body and died in your place. Took the wrath that you deserved. And he will not give his glory to any other. If there was another way, then he would have gone to the cross. He wouldn't have. Read the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He did the final check with his father. If this cup could pass from me, this cup of wrath. But if not, Father, your will be done. And of course, he drank that cup of wrath that was poured upon him on the cross, which means that there is no other way but through Jesus Christ. For anyone to be saved. You can call us narrow and I won't apologize for it. And so if you're a non-believer, I would say break the cycle. Break the cycle as you see these descendants of Seth. They broke that cycle. You had Cain and you had this godless society that was built up. But then you had... This descendant of Seth, you had Enosh come along and men began to call on the name of the Lord. They, they broke that cycle. And so if you're a non-believer, I would say break that cycle. Be the first in your family to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Be the first in your family to call upon the name of the Lord in prayer and in proclaiming his name in public worship, identifying yourself with Christ. And then I would encourage you to gather with the rest of the believers in public worship. And just like they did, these descendants of Seth, how they gathered in public worship, they called upon his name, gave him the glory, gave God the glory. They gathered together. The scriptures would even tell us in Hebrews 10 to forsake not the assemblings of yourselves together as the manner of some. As some have already done it. Some have already stopped coming to church, even in the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews, they stopped gathering with the saints. But we need to do it more as we see the day approaching. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 10, I would encourage you, if you're not a believer right now, break the cycle. Be the first in your family. Call upon his name and salvation and gather with the saints in public worship. But to the believer, to the believer, I would say, keep calling on the name of the Lord. Don't stop calling on the name of the Lord because the world like Cain and like Cain's descendants, they only want to focus on their worldly achievements. Well, I built the first city or I'm the father of, of this trade. I'm the father of that trade. I'm the first one to do this and that, but, but it didn't have a, a God in it. And so we live in a world where there, there's many people like Cain and, and his descendants just focusing on being the first. Just focusing only on worldly achievements. And I'm talking about worldly achievements without God in mind, without God being involved. Focusing on things of this world only. And I would say, let them have it. Just like let, 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 let Cain and his descendants have it. Because it's going to burn. But, but as for us, 
Yes, we're going to take care of our earthly responsibilities. But for the believer, continue to gather. Continue to pray. Continue to worship. Continue to call upon the name of the Lord. Continue to unashamedly give God the glory. Or they're going to call you a bigot. They're going to call you a religious zealot, but continue to call upon the name of the Lord in public worship. Or they're going to try to shut down the churches. They're going to have people spying and sitting in here just taking notes and and trying to go back to the authorities and sue us and maybe even have us arrested. But keep calling on the name of the Lord. Keep gathering in public worship. Amen. In other words, continue to be the light in the midst of an evil, sinful, godless society. Because that's what Seth and Enosh and his descendants, that's what they've learned to do. They've learned to have a a spiritual awakening. They've learned to have a revival in the midst of a godless society. They've learned to call upon the name of the Lord when, when nobody else was. But I'll say this because I don't want to sound too negative. (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen with this country, but continue to pray for revival. Continue to pray for a spiritual awakening and be available to share the gospel with whomever God puts in your way. Amen. 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 May the worship team come up and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to call upon your name for salvation and just to come to you just in a sweet time of fellowship. And I think we take that for granted, myself included. And so I ask for forgiveness for those times, Lord, where when I haven't spent that time with you as I should have. And maybe there's somebody here who maybe haven't taken advantage of that time and appreciated the opportunity to call upon your name and to enjoy just worshiping you, just enjoy your presence. Maybe there's somebody here who who haven't appreciated that, Lord. I I pray that you would lead them to that place, Lord, where they would ask for forgiveness if necessary. And may you protect them from condemnation from the enemy. But I do pray for strength mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you'll equip us and use us, guide us this week, Lord, all for your glory. And may you watch over each and every one of us, Lord, as we head back home. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church, how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.